Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about some assembly required, Chapter 8. This brings us to the final chapter of Some Assembly Required, A Neo-Surrealist Forsaking a Habit for Lent. It's a shorter chapter than the last couple that I've shared, but I do intend at the end to regroup and perhaps even restate some things that explain why this work is subtitled Temptations from the Wilderness 2. For now, though, Chapter 8. From the desk of Ryan Brundage to Trey Arthur regarding... Teen Chastity Peace. I think you've got a live one here, buddy. I really do. However, let's not limit ourselves to the family mag market, okay? Save what you've done. I'm not recommending changes at this point. On the other hand, I think your story is missing some pieces if you want to go for a wider audience, which, by the way, I think you should. Fear not. You can interview the same sources. It would be better to maintain a continuity there. Anyway, all I'm looking for is an additional rewrite that pursues some other angles. Specifically, I have three things in mind to fill in the gaps on this willing-to-wait trend spreading through high schools and junior high schools. One, what is sex? Not a stupid question. I repeat, this is not a stupid question. These kids are vowing to abstain from sex until marriage. Fine and dandy. But what do they mean by sex? Are they specifying intercourse? Do they include oral sex? Are they abstaining from masturbation? And if so, I think we should be asking more questions. Grant me this much, please. My mother strongly, I mean strongly, objected to my kissing girls goodnight on their front porch because of what the neighbors would think. You're practically having sex on the front porch, she once said. Taking my experiences as a given, do goodnight kisses qualify as sex? Let's find out what these kids think they're giving up. 2. Why do the adults organizing these pledge drives think that this program will suddenly supersede safe sex education? Thought I wouldn't notice that, didn't you? How can a writer who has stood so firmly in the past in favor of diversified approaches to social education let this go unchallenged? For crying out loud, Trey, you've got this guy in your story saying that willing-to-wait programs will mark the elimination of condom distribution programs. I'm not saying you have to call this guy on the carpet. Just do the same thing you did during the presidential campaign. Ask him whether he believes that all children learn about the world in exactly the same manner. Then ask him if birth control education isn't a valuable safety net to have around after all. That's it. No need to be nasty about it. In fact, if you want to maintain the family mag market, it would be better if you were subtle. 3. Haven't parents always maintained that kids are too young to make wise sexual decisions? The coordinator could address this question, but I'd rather hear what mom and dad have to say. Lead them through the logic. If youth have always been too young to make decisions about sex then what makes this generation of children so different? 
just because this group happens to be deciding against having sex doesn't change the fact that parents are now granting them the intellect to make their own decisions about whether to have sex. This is an absolute reversal of all our traditions. For conservatives, this has to be a disturbing retreat from dogma. It isn't enough to say that these kids are wise enough because they are making the, quote, right choice, unquote. If that were true, then it would be obvious that choice has nothing to do with it. Only one answer, the right answer, is getting rubber stamped. My skepticism is based around the pendulum theory. What is going to happen when these same kids start breaking their contracts like major league ball players once they've spent a couple years on the college campus? I'm not saying every kid is destined to break his vow. I'm not even saying that half of them will. What I'm suggesting is this. A lot of emphasis is being placed on the validity of promises being made by kids to parents who, themselves, do not believe their children are mature enough to make such a decision. Follow that trail. We shouldn't query until we know these answers, whether we choose to use them or not. We'll need to move quickly, though. Copy me by Friday. Darkness sets in. I don't like being wrong. I'm insecure about that. And if this whole scenario were staged, it would hurt for reasons other than deception. I don't like being the fall guy. To handle the distance, what will I have to give up? And what will be the cost? Anyway, what's my real perception of past events? What if I'm wrong in my view? I'm afraid. I'm also afraid to be afraid. Note, this is not a good time for reality to explode. But I've looked into the future. And I don't see any possible worlds at all. I'm just afraid to be without you forever. While I'm afraid to be hesitant, I'm still afraid to say what I mean. Am I all right? I honestly don't know anymore. And I need to hear it if it's true. Tell me what you need to know. I'll tell you. I'll tell you the truth. I will because it matters more to me than it could to you. Does being so far away make me seem less normal, less lovable, less you? Alejandro Scati, an early 20th century philosopher from Spain, suggests that the key to our vague notions of right and wrong are simply questions of truth and virtue working together. As human beings, a great many of us consider our life's work to be a quest for truth. Not just philosophers, but many journalists, politicians, and lawyers certainly fall into this pit. The false assumption most of them make is that truth is somehow elusive, distant, concealed. Their truth must be tracked down, captured, and unveiled. Scotty deferred. He believed the truth was, in fact, wandering around us all the time. Scotty's view of truth was a paradox of ubiquity and invisibility. Yet, the philosopher insists, making so-called right decisions depends upon proper use of knowledge to ascertain our options and then employ that knowledge effectively. To Scotty, truth is a full understanding of what can be known— and virtue is the appropriate use of that knowledge. This brings us to the two questions. First, by what means do we learn? And second, how can we use our knowledge to solve our problems? Humans learn through four methods. Empiricism, ratiocination, 
intuition, and faith. Empiricism is the most basic. I know it because I saw it. Empirical knowledge is a product of observation. I saw Conan eat the red berry, then fall over dead. Therefore, I know that red berry to be poisonous. Radiocination is simply the exercise of reason. I know it because it makes sense. Radiocination is credited most often with separating man from other animals. This red berry comes from the same kind of tree as the berry that killed Conan. Therefore, this berry also must be poisonous. Intuition is the introspective knowledge of the self. I think, therefore, I am. Intuition permits the higher forms of thought because it opens the mind to a dialogue with self. The voice telling me that these red berries are dangerous is not the voice of a stranger or of God, but myself. This is me saying these things. Faith is the intuitive knowledge of God. God's existence is necessary for my existence. At the same time we recognize our own voice, we also realize that the voice predates our ability to create. Our self stems from a larger, necessary state of being. Not only did I not plant the tree that grew the berry that killed Conan, I also did not plant myself. As I prove my existence to the satisfaction of myself, I thereby prove the existence of God. Human beings employ the methods of learning differently. We likewise are individually unique. Once knowledge is gathered, it can be applied through two options, deontology and teleology. Deontology is a means approach. We take action out of a sense of duty to do what is right. I warn everyone in the tribe about the berry that killed Conan because it is the right thing to do if I value living in a society. Teleology is an ends approach. We take action designed to produce a proper and desirable result. I warn everyone in the tribe about the berry that killed Conan because I would struggle to survive without the help of others who would die if they ate the same berry. Scottie does not make value judgments about these combinations. All four methods of learning will lead to truth, he says, and there is virtue in both deontology and teleology. Even in the area of faith, a facet that distinguished him from his contemporaries, Scottie makes no claims. His point was structural. Right and wrong are determined by the intersection of our methods of learning and our options for applying that knowledge. Question 6. Apply an historical Christian heresy to modern society, using a combination of biographical information and a specific reference to current events. Marcion, a Roman official who lived in the 2nd century, believed that the God of the Jews was separate and distinct from Jesus Christ. For him, the Old Testament's God was vicious and cruel, while the God represented by Jesus was loving and caring. Marcion was so committed to separating the deity of Christianity away from Judaism that his followers only accepted the letters of Paul and an edited version of Luke's Gospel as Scripture. The distinction between the Old Testament God of Judgment and the New Testament God of Forgiveness is understood in the whole of Christianity through the Trinity, in this case God the Father and God the Son. For Marcion, 
whose movement spread from Rome and remained influential for 200 years, the characteristic traits bore no familial relationship. It was to his political advantage to urge a separatist point of view. The development of the Nicene Creed and the Council at Constantinople is testimony of the success Marcion was having. This 4th century document marked the end of formal Marcionism. However, traces of his separatism still exist today. While anti-Semitism is often twinged with traces of legitimate Marcionism, the more common appearance of this separatism has recently appeared in inverse form in fundamentalist Christianity. In the quest for a return to a rigid moral code, many fundamentalist Christians have emphasized the judgment of the Old Testament God at the expense of New Testament views. Thus, we are encountering inverse Marcionism. The best example I've seen recently came during the 1988 Democratic Convention in Atlanta. Pro-life groups protesting the pending nomination of Michael Dukakis descended upon the city in an effort to squeeze local abortion clinics out of business. One such group, identifying itself as Operation Rescue, made fascinating comments to the evening news one night. Parenthetically, I'm sorry, but I don't now recall whether the speaker was Reverend Tucci or Reverend Mahoney, but I believe it was the latter. For our purposes, I'll simply identify this speaker as Operation Rescue, since he was acting as a spokesman. A reporter asked Operation Rescue about the group's religious orientation, which he confirmed. Being a minister, the point was obvious. Then the reporter asked the reverend to reconcile, if he could, the hateful and sometimes violent acts of his followers with Jesus' admonitions that we love one another, turn the other cheek, and not cast stones unless we first are sinless. Operation Rescue's response... Jesus wasn't addressing the abortion issue because abortion wasn't an issue in his day. However, if Jesus were here, witnessing the brutal slaughter of the unborn children, etc., etc., then he surely would side with us in our effort to shut down these abortionists. The reporter briefly followed up by asking whether Jesus wouldn't regard Operation Rescue as a group of zealots. The answer was similar to the first. The heresy here is the denial of the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, surely an ordained minister would not openly deny the Trinity. On the other hand, Operation Rescue clearly denies Jesus the status of a necessary being, which is the substantive nature of God. A necessary being, as defined by St. Anselm and others since, is omniscient and omnipresent in addition to being omnipotent. Jesus, as God, knows everything. The Bible, as divinely inspired and fallible document, encompasses everything. It is not possible as a Christian to believe that the commandments of Christ can, in any manner, fail to apply in all situations, in all centuries. To be a Christian is to accept that Jesus, as God, knew exactly what he was doing and saying. The heresy here is inverse Marcionism, because rather than siding with the New Testament against the Old, Groups like Operation Rescue side with the Old Testament law and disregard New Testament teaching whenever it's convenient. By this means, thou shalt not kill totally supersedes let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Also, much like Marcion, this heresy serves Operation Rescue's political goals. When beneficial, they can embrace the teachings of Jesus. When detrimental, 
Well, Jesus didn't live in the 20th century, is the reply that limits the debate to Old Testament law. Marcion was rejected by proper Christianity because the church recognized the value of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Believers in the 4th century recognized that the promise of a Messiah gave the life and death of Christ a primordial meaning. In the 20th century, Christians must affirm that any approach to Old Testament law with a disregard for the teachings of Christ is misguided. Whatever Christians may think about pro-life and similar movements, true believers know that God's will won't be done if notions of forgiveness and redemption aren't included in the debate. Otherwise, inverse Marcionism will continue to flourish. Capital A hyphen period. Then, attach the notch from B4 into A1 with the corners facing outward. Hyphen 30 hyphen. Greetings from the cockpit. This is Captain Scott, and we'd like to thank you for flying the Seder Sphere. This is co-pilot Cindy. We ask you at this time to unfasten your safety belt and release your chairs from their uptight position. We're high-flying with stopovers expected in theater, gaming, movies, television, and other mature destinations. We'd like to thank you for flying the frisky skies, and we hope to see you on our next flight to the Seder Sphere. As I prepare to segue into the different drummer segment, following sort of the form that has kind of taken over the year 2020 on inappropriate conversations, uh, lead with the topic by trying to keep the chapters shared in this novella all at the beginning of the show. Follow that with the different drummer. Follow that with some end notes and other commentary. Uh, we'll stick to that form for this one last show. I'll be interested in future Inappropriate Conversations podcasts, whether I get the opportunity to put the different drummer at the beginning for a change. It's been a while since I've done that. But in the process of kind of moving in the direction of the different drummer, let me start, though, with a few references to past Inappropriate Conversations. And I'll probably do these more or less in the order that they appear. I think I'm going to do them chronologically because there's a lot here to share that refers both to this chapter, eighth, final chapter of Some Assembly Required, and also to our different drummer. In March of 2011, uh, so this would technically be probably right around the, the first anniversary of the show. It began in March 2010. This would be March 4th, 2011. I recorded a podcast which I called Four Things I Know. A big piece of it was an excerpt that I just shared here, a piece of chapter 8, uh, near the end of the chapter, in fact. In fact, the name Four Things I Know gives you a hint as to which part of this uh, short story I originally shared back then in 2011. That episode has always been special to me because of the different drummer. Not inherently that the fictional character Joan Girardi is all that important, or that the short-lived television show Joan of Arcadia is that important. It is to me but more that that is also additional background to another string that runs through inappropriate conversations on the topic of intersexual friendship. I don't think I'm going to take the time today to, to lay down all the past references to shows that have dealt with that topic. It's enough to maybe number drop number 44, number 79, number 80, number 90. It's appeared numerous times. And inside the different drummer segment of that past inappropriate conversations, episode number 48, there were also references to these concepts of mine related to the importance of intersexual friendship. I mention it now because in some ways, 
sharing the entire chapter 8 is a bit of a callback to that older episode. The main thing I want to do when I emphasize past episodes, though, is talk about how this applies to the work, the concepts, the writing, and the influence of Boethius of Rome. Boethius is our different drummer. On June 26, 2011, I released Inappropriate Conversations number 61 called Impermanence of Time. It was hard to talk about that topic without referring to my answer to the questions raised by the different drummer in that episode, philosopher Norman Kretzmann. And my answers came through C.S. Lewis, but his answers came through Boethius. So Boethius was getting mentions perhaps as early as Inappropriate Conversations 61. He certainly was getting mentions a couple of years later in Inappropriate Conversations number 143. I'll get there in a moment. But I think as I discuss the ideas of Boethius of Rome, it's going to create for me, if I'm not mistaken, a callback to Rob Bell as a different drummer. That would be Inappropriate Conversations 131, October 22nd, 2013. That one came out. Christianity 301 was the name of the episode. And I shared a lot of Rob Bell's ideas. I'm going to refer back to some of them when dealing with kind of Boethius's concepts about time and maybe what we really mean by the concept of eternal. Because to me, time is really the key contribution to thought that Boethius codified really shortly before his death and shared with the world. And um, we'll do some short biographical work. We'll introduce that idea. And the question would be, if you knew you were going to be executed at some indistinct but clearly imminent future time, if every day when you woke up in a prison cell or in confinement, it might be your last day on earth, would you write several books of philosophy or would you do something different with your time? Well, I'm for one very glad that Boethius put down in writing concepts which perhaps reflected a synthesis of the notions that he had been working on through his entire lifetime as a philosopher, ideas from Plato and Aristotle that he had translated into Latin so that his contemporaries in Rome, Italy, and the Roman Empire could understand these ancient Greek ideas. Um, to me, that has influenced us in more ways than we know. Uh, the verticality of time referred back again to this notion of what it means to think of an eternal now. In doing so, I actually made reference in that with the different drummer of Kurt Vonnegut. And Vonnegut, like C.S. Lewis, being influenced by the writings of a philosopher many centuries earlier. So in dropping Boethius in as a different drummer, it seems like that's long overdue because he has been an influential part of at least past episodes like Inappropriate Conversations 61, 131, and 143. Using Wikipedia as source material, it refers to Anicius, Manlius, Severinus, Boethius, commonly known as Boethius, was a Roman senator, consul, magister officiorium, and philosopher of the early, of the early 6th century. He was born about a year after Odocor deposed the last Western Roman emperor and declared himself king of Italy. Boethius entered public service under the Ostrogoth king Theodoric the Great, who later imprisoned and executed him in the year 524 on charges of conspiracy to overthrow him. While jailed, Boethius composed his Consolation of Philosophy, 
a philosophical treatise on fortune, death, and other issues, which became one of the most popular influential works of the Middle Ages. As the author of numerous handbooks and a translator of Aristotle, he became the main intermediary between classical antiquity and following centuries. Boethius thus lives at an interesting crossroads. He was uh, the perhaps the end of the classical period or in between classical and medieval thought, and yet a work that predates the medieval period of philosophy has been viewed widely as one of the most influential works of later medieval philosophy. Most of his writings, or at least a large number of his writings, were actually looking backwards, trying to make sure that the past was being brought forward in the form of translation and uh, hoping in many ways to facilitate the wide sharing of past knowledge, whether truly viewed as established knowledge or at least as concepts that should and must be considered. So he stood kind of in between eras when it comes to philosophy. He also, according to the Wikipedia article that I've mentioned as an intro, struggled a little bit to get acceptance from historians because he straddles the line to some degree between pre-Christian thought and Christian thought. One of the last paragraphs in that Wikipedia page says this, Past classical and medieval historians have had a hard time accepting a sincere Christian who was also a serious Hellenist. Arnaldo Mamigliano argues that many people have turned to Christianity for consolation, Boethius turned to paganism. His Christianity collapsed. It collapsed so thoroughly that perhaps he did not even notice its disappearance. End quote. However, this view does not reflect the majority of current scholarship on the matter. The community that he was, that he was a part of valued both classical and Christian culture. So, religiously, standing at a crossroads. By avocation, philosophy, standing at a crossroads. And to many ways, when I look for the qualities of someone that I might cite as a different drummer... I usually look for people who are, if they're artists, are they cross-disciplinary artists? Are they both musicians and painters, for example? In this case, you've got somebody who is cross-disciplinary, even arguably intersectional, in his bridge building between the past and the future. One of my favorite quotes, don't know who to attribute it to, is this. When you build bridges, you are misunderstood by both sides. And to some degree, maybe that misunderstanding is very well representative of Boethius. One more quote, perhaps, from Wikipedia, and then I'll venture, venture into the words of Boethius himself to some degree. Boethius is recognized as a martyr for the Catholic faith by the Roman martyrology through Watkins, saying that his status as martyr is dubious. His cult is held in Pavia, where Boethius' status as a saint was confirmed in 1883, and in the church at Santa Maria in Portico in Rome. His feast day is October 23rd. Pope Benedict XVI explained that the relevance of Boethius to modern-day Christianity by linking his teachings to an understanding of providence. He is also venerated in the Eastern Orthodox Church. To me, it's um, theologically these concepts of providence which are very important. And what they do for me philosophically is help me deal with what I consider to be a very plain and obvious understanding of the relationship between God's knowledge and man's knowledge, solving, if you will, what the uh, it's often called the predestination problem. If you take a hard Calvinist view of theology, you definitely end up with a predestination problem. But a lot of that is based around a complete misunderstanding of concepts like forever, eternal, and time itself. When I mentioned past inappropriate conversations episodes, 
I was in fact referring a lot to my thoughts on time. Number 61 from 2011 was the impermanence of time. And number 143 coming out of 2014 was the verticality of time. These are all areas where the concepts of Boethius are extremely relevant. Before I go deeper into any of my thoughts on it, though, and tie it back to that Rob Bell reference I made, let me first start with Boethius himself. From the Constellation of Philosophy, book number five, kind of midway through the book, is where I find the interesting concepts. My paperback edition is called Free Will and God's Foreknowledge. It was published by Compass Circle in 2019. And it gives you a sense that even though the work is broken into five books, it's actually short and relatively handy as a paperback, not much more than 130 pages long. Inside book number five, section four, includes philosophy herself, answering Boethius's questions about the dilemma of, if God knows everything and knows things that I will do before I do them, doesn't that mean that I don't have free will? Because if God's knowledge is perfect, what God knows must happen as God knows it. And therefore, if what happens happens because God knows it, then what control do I have? And how can I be blamed for the mistakes I've made when in some ways the things that I do wrong are simply God's will? Philosophy answers him in a very long and detailed treatise, but there's a few highlights I'd like to share. One of them is, frankly, her attitude. This female personification of philosophy engaging in that conversation I mentioned in chapter 8 of this short story, about intuition being the possibility of having a dialogue with self, faith being the possibility of having dialogue with God through prayer, meditation, or other means. And here, something maybe in between is occurring, where in his moment of, of great trial, of suffering, of inevitable death, Boethius has taken the time to have a conversation with a personified feminine form representing philosophy incarnate. Philosophy says to him this, The movement of human reasoning cannot cope with the simplicity of the divine foreknowledge. It's the only sentence I'm going to share from this particular section of the book, but I thought it was really important to call it out that what we often think of, what I often have heard in church circles, that my concepts of time, uh, my notion that God lives in an eternal now, all very orthodox ideas, things which have never been contradicted by the Christian philosophers who came after Boethius, things which, frankly, C.S. Lewis shared in radio addresses to um, a listening audience in England, cowering in fear of blitzkrieg attacks during World War II. I mean, this is all very consistent Orthodox, dare I say, even conservative Christianity from the perspective of reflecting with accuracy and fidelity what has been shared and kind of codified in the past. If I move forward into a couple of sections later in the book, we get to this concept of what it means to be eternal. It gets to the heart of this notion of the eternal now. And although the first and last sections I want to share from the Constellation of Philosophy will be really short, almost pithy, this one might go on a bit because I think conceptually it's worth the time to consider. Because to me, everything hinges on the notion of us kind of being humble enough to not presume that our understanding of time therefore binds God as an eternal creature, creator of all things, to that, that 
we sometimes presume that our experience of cause and effect and the flow of time and even the notion of a 24-hour day is somehow true eternally when we know even from the basics of what Einstein had, had discovered. And physics knows today that time on this planet is not the same thing as time between planets or time on other planets. We know, as I've mentioned in those past inappropriate conversations, that our understanding of time as, as a race of human beings is inherently limited, inherently small, and perhaps so is our definition of concepts like eternal. Here's what philosophy says. God is eternal. In this judgment, all rational beings agree. Let us then consider what eternity is. For this word carries with it a revelation alike of the divine nature and of the divine knowledge. Now, eternity is the possession of endless life, whole and perfect at a single moment. What this is becomes more clear and manifest from a comparison with things temporal. For whatever lives in time is a present proceeding from the past to the future, and there is nothing set in time which can embrace the whole space of its life together. Tomorrow's state it grasps not yet, while it has already lost yesterday's. Nay, even in the life of today ye live no longer than one brief transitory moment. Whatever, therefore, is subject to the condition of time, although, as Aristotle deemed of the world, it never has beginning nor end, and its life be stretched to the whole extent of time's infinity, it yet is not such as rightly be thought eternal. For it does not include and embrace the whole space of infinite life at once, but has no present hold on things to come not yet accomplished. Accordingly, that which includes and possesses the whole fullness of unending life at once, from which nothing future is absent, from which nothing past has escaped, this is rightly called eternal. This must of necessity be ever present to itself in full self-possession and hold the infinity of movable time in an abiding present. Capping it off, from this same section of the book, section 6 of book 5, uh, philosophy says this, We should think this way about God's knowledge. It is not foreknowledge of something future, but knowledge of a moment that never passes. Not prevision, but providence. To me, this absolutely solves the problem of how human beings can have free will and be accountable for their actions in light of the fact that a God already knows what they would do because God is watching what we do as we do it. Both past, present, and future are all now. Not to break too far away from Boethius here, but I would take it even one step further that if you think in terms of possible world theory, God is not only aware of every actual past, present, and future from our perception of actuality, God is also instantaneously aware in an eternal now of every other choice we made that we did not, by our human will, actualize. That every possible world, or every combination of possible worlds, not just through our own set of choices, but our interactions with others as they make their set of choices, 100% of these possibilities, which clearly goes beyond 3D and beyond 4D into some dimensionality that we probably couldn't articulate, even if we presumed to claim we understood it, all of those possibilities are also understood from the perspective of an eternal now, 
with an infinite wisdom deciphering inside that what we actually mean by things done versus things not done or things merely considered. When we talk about words like providence, whether we elect to capitalize the P or not, it's actually a much bigger deal. It is both clearly beyond human comprehension that it's not the kind of thing that we typically can wrap our minds around. But as human beings, particularly apologists, some naively on side of certain Christian views, I mentioned Calvinism earlier, I don't want to throw that entire baby out with the bathwater, but there are certainly parts of Calvinism that make this mistake, just as there are parts of what I might describe as radical atheism who make the exact same mistake, holding the same coin and presuming that looking on the opposite side of that coin makes it somehow a different coin. It's not. And worse, from the perspective of philosophy, in what she shared with Boethius on his last days, there really is no excuse for this confusion. It's lack of humility, perhaps even some sort of you know mis- misplaced pride, because philosophy states that the movement of human reasoning cannot cope with the simplicity of, design, of divine foreknowledge. In other words, from philosophy's perspective, this is not hard to grasp. We simply refuse to grasp it. One of the things that I found when I was looking to try to provide at least a somewhat rounded kind of notion of Boethius, I kept finding myself migrating, as I think most people have, at least most Christian thinkers have throughout history, to you know basically a few parts of a section of one book in a series of books written and paper-backed up as the consolation of philosophy, that there tends to be a laser-like focus. And I wanted to at least extend that a little bit by maybe calling myself out somewhat as being one of those people who's a touch simple-minded. I found a blog called um, Logismoi, uh, a refuge for the weary and the oppressed, and a treasury of good counsel and wise lore, a post that was placed there attributed to Aaron Taylor. Now, this was posted uh, January 26, 2010, so this blog post predates inappropriate conversations in its entirety. It can be found here, uh, L-O-G-I-S-M-O-I-T-O-U-A-A-R-O-N dot blogspot dot com slash 2010 slash zero one. And it's Lewis on Boethius Old Books. Um, That's kind of how you'd find it. So, Logismoy is this blog, and the writer is uh, is Aaron Taylor. And he provides this particular challenge, with I, which I thought quite helpful. Taylor speaking, referring to a quote he'd made to uh, C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters. Lewis has just been talking about the traditional Christian reconciliation of God's omniscience and human free will. On this subject, Screwtape comments... It may be replied that some meddlesome human writers, notably Boethius, have let this secret out. But in the intellectual climate which we have at last succeeded in producing throughout Western Europe, you needn't bother about that. And it is here that he embarks upon the explanation. Only the learned read old books, and they are of all men least likely to acquire wisdom by doing so. Well, Taylor writes... I chanced to remark, apropos of nothing, I believe that this reference to Boethius was one of my favorite parts of the book. A friendly fellow, having, I think, momentarily forgotten the thrust of the passage, responded by telling me I would need to explain to him, and probably to many others as well, who exactly Boethius was. I ventured a short biographical summary, 
6th century Roman senator, Christian philosopher, thrown in prison, executed by Theodoric, wrote the Consolation of Philosophy, and then attempted tactfully to remind him of just what Lewis was trying to say about him in the book. This was the tricky part. Obviously, Lewis is suggesting that the demons are either responsible for, or at least pleased with, a situation in which no one except intellectually immunized scholars have heard of or ventured to read Boethius. I wanted to make this clear to the fellow and gently suggest that he go about rectifying the situation in his own case when it dawned on him. He said something to the effect of, Oh, so basically I've just proved the point, eh? I felt a little bad, but what can one do? The point being that we have had this knowledge going all the way back to the early part of the 6th century. This knowledge that we have is closer to the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ calendar-wise than even it is to the Protestant Reformation, let alone our current day. But there's something about us that makes us either reject this kind of information as, um, you know, ivory tower stuff that doesn't matter and shouldn't be given the time of day, or the opposite side of that coin is treating these words as if they are historical and therefore in some way not necessarily relevant. I would take it even one step further. The reason that I referred to the Inappropriate Conversations podcast that had uh, Rob Bell as the different drummer was that when someone actually applies these ideas to modern questions or to current modern editions of very old questions, we are more likely to attack them, even attack them with insinuations that they're somehow heretics, than we are to recognize the consistent flow between what the person is actually saying and what the philosophers originally taught. To get there, I'd like to share what may be even a repeat sharing of a passage from the Rob Bell book, Love Wins, a book that proved to be far more controversial than I, from my own perspective, can even justify. In other words, it may be an example of someone being more interested in not having to own the responsibility of the knowledge of people like Boethius than when concepts of the true meaning of eternal, as described by Lady Philosophy herself, get reintroduced by another author centuries later, we're more likely to question that author's, you know, to, we're more likely to deride them as a heretic than we are to accept how that author's views fits in to the history of Christian philosophy. Here's Rob Bell. I'll be reading from the hardback Harper One edition, pages 57 through part of 59. For Jesus, heaven is more real than what we experience now. This is true for the future, when earth and heaven become one, but also for today. To understand this, let's return to that Greek word ion that we once translated as age in English. We saw earlier how ion refers to a period of time with a beginning and an end. Another meaning of ion is a bit more complex and nuanced because it refers to a particular intensity of experience that transcends time. Remember sitting in class and it was so excruciatingly boring that you found yourself staring at the clock? Tick. 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 What happened to time in those moments? It slowed down. We even say it felt like it was taking forever. Now, when we use the word forever in this way, 
We are not talking about a 365-day year followed by a 365-day year followed by another 365-day year and so on. What we are referring to is the intensity of feeling in that moment. That agonized boredom caused time to appear to bend and twist and warp. Another example, this one less about agony and more about ecstasy. When you fall in love, those first conversations can take hours, yet they feel like minutes. You are so caught up in being with that person that you lose track of time. In this case, the clock doesn't slow down. Instead, time flies. Whether an experience is pleasurable or painful, in extreme moments of life, what we encounter is time dragging and flying, slowing down and speeding up. That's what Ion refers to, a particularly intense experience. Ion is often translated as eternal in English, which is an altogether different word from forever. Let me be clear. Heaven is not forever in the way we think of forever as a uniform measurement of time like days and years marching endlessly into the future. That's not a category or concept we find in the Bible. That, that is why a lot of translators chose to translate ion as eternal. By this, they don't mean the literal passing of time. They mean transcending time, belonging to another realm altogether. To summarize then, sometimes when Jesus used the word heaven, he was simply referring to God using the word as a substitute for the name of God. Sometimes, when Jesus spoke of heaven, he was referring to the future coming together of heaven and earth in what he and his contemporaries called life in the age to come. And then third, and this is where things get really interesting, when Jesus talked about heaven, he was talking about our present, eternal, intense, real experiences of joy, peace, and love in this life this side of death, and the age to come. Heaven for Jesus wasn't just some day. It was a present reality. Jesus blurs the lines, inviting the rich man and us into a merging of heaven and earth, the present and the future, here and now. To say it again, eternal life is less about the kind of time that starts when we die and more about the quality and vitality of life lived now in connection to God. That's Rob Bell from his book, Love Wins. What I would add to that, and that, just quoting Bell again, I'm sure, is that when Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven is here, or the kingdom of heaven is among us, he's talking about that idea, that we need to be acting and functioning as if we understand that to be truly in communion with God is to be taking steps closer and closer and closer to the notion of time being an eternal now not a past, present, and future. And for this, Boethius is a different drummer that has had an influence over at least three and probably more than a handful of past episodes of both Inappropriate Conversations and Walk the Earth. As always, the end notes for a novella, a surrealist or neo-surrealist writing exercise that included a set of what would have been footnotes or endnotes. For chapter 8, Alejandro Scotti is a reference to the lectures of Dr. Walter Scott, Oklahoma State University, 1985-1986. Quote, 
even in the area of faith, Scott, Ibid, refers to Scott's theory that faith and intuition are correlative methods of introspective self-knowledge, or at least my interpretation of those theories. Quoting Marcion, a Roman, J. Robert Bumstead, The Religious World, Communities of Faith, New York, Macmillan Publishing, 1982, page 269. Quoting, Trinity in this case, Ibid, pages 270 to 272. Quoting, Council at Constantinople, Ibid, pages 271 to 272. Quoting, From one such group to acting as a spokesman, refers to pro-life group Operation Rescue and leaders Keith Tucci and Pat Mahoney. Interview was televised in 1988. The network and reporter unknown. Quoting, A necessary being, as, refers specifically to the work of St. Anselm and John Hick, studying the nature of God. The articles The Divine Exists Through Itself, St. Anselm, from Monologium, LaSalle, Illinois, The Open Court Publishing Company, published from the original 1093 text, reprinted, Philosophy of Religion, Selected Readings, edited by William L. Rowe and William J. Wainwright, published New York, Harcourt Brace Jovanovich, 1973, pages 7 through 10. And the article, Necessary Being, by John Hick, from Scottish Journal of Theology, 1961, the reprint, Ibid, pages 14 through 27. Quoting, Thou shalt not kill, reference to Exodus 20, verse 13, Holy Bible, untranslated. And the reference to Let He Who Is Without Sin refers to John chapter 8, verse 7, Holy Bible, untranslated. That concludes the end notes, and as I've also pretty much 30 to this text, brought it to its the end, I'd like to kind of circle back to where I started and read the introduction to the notes page, the postscript, if you will, sort of explaining what this, um, you know, Temptations from the Wilderness 2 writing experiment was all about for Lent in the year 1994 that I've cobbled together, placed into chapters almost randomly under the name Some Assembly Required, a neo-surrealist forsaking a habit for Lent. What is to be accomplished by giving something up for Lent? My guess is that a large number of Christians who observe traditions of Lent would be less than confident in the answer to this question. If called upon to speak upon behalf of all Christianity, I also would join the ranks of the underconfident. Speaking only for myself, though, I always celebrated Lent in a manner inconsistent with the majority of the Christian world. Rather than spreading the 40 days out through Easter and incorporating days off on Sundays, I always strive to concentrate the 40 days and 40 nights together so that, like Jesus' stay in the wilderness, my process of sacrifice would end with a return to Jerusalem, so to speak. This year, as in an occasional year past, I chose to engage in an undertaking for Lent, rather than a forsaking. Our typical images of Lenten sacrifice include giving up meat, chocolate, or certain beverages. The goal, of course, is to attain a measure of self-improvement through the process of sacrifice. This same goal can be achieved by practicing certain disciplines rather than avoiding others. In this case, I wanted to clear my mind, improve my rational thought processes, and engage in an act of creation by committing to a daily regimen of writing. What did I give up for Lent? Laziness, excuses for avoiding creative impulses, 
the waste of letting ideas die on the vine before meaningful juices can be squeezed from them. There I mentioned that I was not alone in my efforts, and that's why I chose to cite in some detail as many references and inspirations as I could. It also might provide clarity if a character in the course of conversation drops some sort of cultural reference a bit too casually, and it might not be clear to the reader exactly what was being referred to, whether a song, a book, or a film. The main thing that this was trying to accomplish was, as much as possible, 40 different writing styles that were distinct enough that you could say either by genre or by the style itself, it was a change. The distinction between a grocery list and a recipe, for example, or between a two-person dialogue that's meant to be emotionally um, impactful, to be full of pathos, versus something designed to be funny, whether it's a conversation or the words of a would-be stand-up comedian. Bringing all those together is the surrealist aspect or the Dadaist aspect of the work. And it being neo-surreal is connecting it to the notion that this was actually a step-by-step rendering of my experience of Lent during the year 1994. In 1972, American TV networks canceled 12 TV shows for crimes they didn't commit. These shows were promptly forgotten by the public and faded into obscurity. Today, Chris Cooling researches these shows for a podcast. If there's a TV show that no one else remembers, and if you have earbuds, maybe you can listen to Forgotten TV. If you've got thoughts and ideas you'd like to share as well, I can be reached in several ways. I do respond to email at ic underscore greg at hotmail.com. Inappropriate Conversations has a Facebook page listed there as a cause. Walk the Earth, by the way, has its own Facebook page as well. I interact for both podcasts under a single Twitter handle, at ic underscore greg. I can be found wherever podcasts can be captured and listened to, including Stitcher Smart Radio. And for SoundCloud, my technique has been to provide a clip of past shows as sort of a representative element, an audio blurb, if you will, to give people a little bit more information about what the tone or even the topic of any past episode might be. I began at the beginning, I've worked my way well into the hundreds, but I'm still catching up with current day. At SoundCloud, I am also IC underscore Greg. Thanks for listening.
music by Kevin McLeod. This show is part of the Pride 48 Network. Find all the best shows under the rainbow at pride48.com.